0: Imagine, you're working at the sharp edge of business as a stockbroker, private banker, and a financial management consultant. Life is good. Suddenly you receive a phone call and your life changes when your son is diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. What would you do? Well, nine years ago, Demetrius Athanasio faced this very situation. He was a very successful financial consultant and executive with more than 25 years experience on international projects he decided to put his business career aside, becoming a full-time international patient advocate in Duchenne and Rare Diseases. He is currently a board member of the European Patient Forum and the World Duchenne Organization. He represents Eurodis on the Pediatric Committee of the European Medicines Agency and is also a trainer for the UPATI Academy, developing the next generation of patient advocates. Demetrius, it's always a pleasure, sir. Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Always a pleasure.
0: Thanks, Demetrius. I'm I'm fine, hunkered down. I'm sure you are too. Of course, you're in Greece. Nicer place to hunker down, I gather. Well, from next week, we can reach to our islands, most <laughs> probably. So yeah, we're looking good. We're looking good. <laughs> Demetrius, I, your story is one that, it's fascinating to me. It really is. Before becoming a patient advocate, you worked what many of us would consider to be the ultimate or like one of the cutting edge jobs. What was that work like?
1: That was a fantastic work. I have to say,
0: yeah. Well,
1: I think it depends also on the personality that you have, but at least they suit uh, my personality and my needs uh, very well. It was very exciting, very straightforward. It didn't have any, you know, really politics inside it. So if you were good, you were surviving. If uh, you were not good in one month, you were fine. So that was a very linear system that I really appreciate.
0: Unlike politics.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And basically advocacy sometimes.
0: So you're a successful business person, you're you're living a good life, and suddenly you receive a phone call, a diagnosis. What was that day like? Well, that was a very, very strange
1: uh, day because, uh, obviously, uh, you are living a perfect life. So you have uh, your family, you have your child, your uh, first-born child. Uh, It's looking good, it's cute, it's smart, you know, it's fantastic. Uh, But then uh, you got uh, something like a gastro, and you visit the hospital to see how you can solve this. Right. So you go in with a gastro and then you get out with a terminal disease. So it can be pretty challenging, let's say, as, uh, as a first experience.
0: What did you discuss with your wife and what sort of conversations did you have when you were deciding you wanted to change your life?
1: Well, the truth is that uh, you, do not, uh, you do not get many options. So uh, it depends, as, as we said before, you know, it depends on the personality because these uh, are news that can break or make a family or a person. Uh, So it depends who you are prior to this. Uh, For me, at least, uh, there was not an option. The moment we got the diagnosis, I realized that I have to fight it. So I couldn't stay in the corner, let's say. And uh, the second thing that, uh, let's say, drove me is that when we are talking about a terminal disease, pretty fast and very heavy, then you already have lost whatever you have to lose. So you have to find ways to gain something out of it. And uh, at least at that moment, I thought that, you know, uh, if I cannot get away with my child, I should win something, you know? Right. So I should save somebody else.
0: And so you decided to become a patient advocate. How hard was that decision?
1: That was an easy decision. It was? There was no other option. I mean, of course, you had to, let's say, balance your life because news like this, you know, it uh, resettles your plans. uh, It rearranges your relationship with others. You lose a lot of friends and acquaintances. Yeah, but you gain uh, fewer and amazing people. So one of the things that I appreciate, let's say, in, in, my, in this trip is that I really gained uh, amazing people close to me.
0: What was the Duchenne situation like in Greece when you decided to fully dedicate yourself to this? Were there other organizations? Did you incorporate yourself into? I think that in general, uh, as a person, I'm against uh, fragmentation. So I, lo- I like to work
1: with uh, other people. And uh, if you have especially rare diseases, uh, fragmentation is a killer. So fragmentation of people, fragmentation of data, fragmentation of efforts, is, uh, it doesn't work. So uh, when I got the diagnosis, we had, uh, were lucky enough to have a well-established, let's say, patient organization. Not patient organization, I would call it a charity, because you have to consider that uh, the neuromuscular patients, most of them are children, don't have life, uh, long life expectancy. So what you're looking for are other qualities. The issue, though, was that by the time uh, we got the diagnosis of uh, Hermes, my son, things were changing dramatically in the clinical research. So new therapies were popping up. So it's not, you don't need the charity part anymore so much, but you also need the advocacy part. Right. And in this, let's say, for the, I joined forces with them, we cover all the neuromuscular diseases in, uh, in Greece, and we advocate also in the European level.
0: So all orphan diseases, obviously, are a challenge by nature of their definition. They're small. Um, Most of them are extremely small, less than one per million. Duchenne has been a very challenging area for research given the neurological pathway. Can you outline the particular challenges of R&D in Duchenne that you've been dealing with and trying to work with?
1: I think uh, I have to put it in perspective. So Duchenne was one of the first disease that was genetically, let's say, diagnosed. That was 40, 50 years ago. Obviously, there was nothing, uh, we could do anything about this information. As the technology improved, then we tried medications that will change this. But it is a complicated and multi-systemic disease. So this, let's say, increased the difficulty of finding uh, a cure because uh, the dystrophin gene is the biggest we have in our body. So even, for example, if you have a fantastic uh, AVV or gene therapy and a virus that you it's, let's say, customized produced for you, then you cannot include inside this virus the size of the dystrophin that you need. So already, you know, this cripples, let's say, your clinical development. And beyond that, I would say, like the most of the rare diseases, you do not have enough knowledge. The more complicated the diseases are becoming, the more difficult it becomes because this specific one is affecting the brain, the behavior. You have autism, you have neurological, muscular, really what you can ever imagine, dystrophin, we don't know how dystrophin is affecting the body. So if you don't know how it's affect treatment, it can be tricky.
0: Are there any good drugs out right now, or is there still a real need for more development?
1: We have good news and uh, less good news. So I think the good news is that we have a lot of products in the pipeline. The, all, the other good news is that we have cured almost every mice with DMD that we tried our drugs. It uh, didn't work for the boys, though. So we have a couple, uh, let's say, of approved products, which also, uh, it's very interesting because in Duchenne case, you have products that are approved in EMA and uh, they are not approved by FDA and vice versa, which also adds to the complexity of the situation. So we have a strong pipeline, but you know, the rare disease drug development is a very, very weird animal. You know, you cannot bet your money that something will pop up of this pipeline. So we continue our effort of uh, promoting research, fundraise, and uh, finance new pathways. But we are optimistic. We had, I don't know, 10 years ago, we had something like uh, seven, eight protocols. Now we have 70.
0: OMPs in Europe have been considered generally a success story. However, since 2016, we've seen a 50% decline in both designations and therapies approved coming through 2019. Why do you think OMPs are having such a challenge in Europe? Over the last four years,
1: I'll start from the beginning. Yes, the regulation is a success. It was a very important step, but the rate that we produce orphan drugs, we will need something like uh, two million uh, years, you know, right. to cover the rare diseases. So, if you are suggesting, let's say, that we're doing good, I would say we could do definitely better. So that's the one part. Um, obviously, there are more than regulators that are, uh, let's say, in the discussion and the forces that drive this development. So we have to think broader. And the other issue is also access. So even if you have a product in the market, it doesn't mean that your patients will have access. And that's also a very challenging discussion. So we have to think about it. We have to consider a new pathway, let's say, from research to access. And most probably it will require also a brain, let's say, change, uh, a thought change of how we develop orphan drugs.
0: When you say a brain change, what do you mean specifically? I
1: think we should consider them in various areas. So I think we should consider, even for the basic research, so if you have in silo data and not open data and uh, shareable data and findable, like the fair principles, then obviously this cripples your research. If you don't work with other researchers and your the patients also, which is most important, because they will tell you what is needed, then this will not be a very productive model. So even from that edge, let's say, of this valley of death. If you don't coordinate your actions in the research part and you don't open and share the data, then you will not have development. But even in the designs of the clinical trials that we have, so clinical trials in uh, rare diseases with placebo arms are really, really challenging. And at least from my experience, most of them are not uh, probable to happen. So that's another barrier. But even towards the end, so Let's say we have a fantastic product that's out in the, in the market. We have seen it with various products, let's say, in Europe, and, but also in the U.S. How we negotiate as Europe or how coordinate as Europe access is a, is a difficult issue. So at least from my perspective, it's very challenging for the industry partner to run around 27, 28, 30 countries to try to have access, let's say, to a medication. Plus, uh, it's also the price, the price issue. So can you negotiate better if you are, I don't know, Greece, Cyprus, Latvia, or can you negotiate better if you are Italy, Germany, UK? I mean, what's the quality in this? So I think together we can do better stuff for both the developers and the actual, let's say, patients that need these drugs.
0: The European Commission was involved in a incentives review around OMPs before COVID-19 hit and the pandemic. And obviously, we'll get to the pandemic in a bit. But one of the things that seems interesting is this idea about block negotiation or trying to get a larger bite at the apple, as it were, when you're looking at some of these orphan products.
1: I think, of course, everything is under, let's say, development and discussion. As uh, we say, behind every, let's say, challenge, there is an opportunity. So maybe we can learn something from COVID. So if for example we have a coordinated action of having access to a very good drug or a very good vaccine for covid as Europe then we might gain something we might gain some experience we might build a little more of the trust between the stakeholders uh, I'm very optimistic that we will gain something of this covid disaster and we will uh, will use this as an opportunity to do better from a patient perspective because only I can speak as a patient definitely this is very close to a solution of course we need entry agreements you know another let's say tools better hda tools also for assessing the benefit of the patient but if there is a will and there is a plan uh, these are the components that will be filled anyway
0: we're all living in a different world now obviously (laughs) than it was six Mm -hmm. months ago do you see the pandemic impacting your work in Duchenne specifically?
1: Well, I would say that it affected the rare disease community like every other community. Other patients' communities, business communities, everybody. It changed the set that we all uh, operate. I will say, though, that the rare disease community, due to the extreme, let's say, situations and challenges that they're facing in everyday life, they're very flexible, very adaptable. So rare disease patients and their parents and uh, the carers are really agile. This applies also to the patient organizations. And I'll give you an example. Just one week prior, in February, mid-February in Italy, when the COVID, let's say, we realized that it was a serious situation, we had our uh, World uh, Conference in Rome.
0: Oh, well, great timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great timing. <laughs>
1: great timing. So, uh, but the reflexes, of course, we are talking about World Duchenne organization and Duchenne community in general, that it is, I can say we left the grassroots advocacy and now we're looking more to a professional, well-oiled machine. So in the same time that we supposed to have the conference, one week later, we had a fantastic series of webinars. Everything worked perfectly. And then we continued this job for every Saturday because we are a global organization. So we had to make sure that it is, let's say, in the afternoon so everybody can join from Alaska to Argentina and to Australia. And we monitor with all our 40-member organizations what's the current situation and update every week, monitoring basically what's the impact, what's the cases, how our boys are affected. And this is not only for Duchenne. But there are issues that are challenging the the families. So, for example, the loss of income. Sure. You know, rare disease is a very expensive sport. It always comes with disability or at least 95% of the time. So, also, disability is a very expensive sport. Yeah, that's the one part. Uh, the other worry that we saw in our assessments, because we ran assessments through the world, through everywhere globally, it was the worry of access to the medicine. Access to the clinical trials so it was a nightmare, because you are live and die by clinical trials and rare diseases. Fundraising for the organization. So, if we live, let's say, from the patient level and we move to the organization level, fundraising, advocacy, policy, if you are not able to meet let's say, the other stakeholder. How is your power? Is this disempowering your advocacy or not? But we are flexible. We're agile. We adapt very fast. And I think we'll do good.
0: One of the things about you adopting the technology, there was a wonderful story from Pat Furlong, who started the World Duchenne Organization. She told me that there were patients in a clinical trial. And... People were trying to figure out who was on the control and who was not. And the parents were very motivated. <laughs> and so they actually started getting the imaging results and started sharing them on their Facebook page to figure out who was having better results than that and then figuring out who was on the placebo. I I think that just shows two things. One, it shows how switched on the community is, both being educated and being aware of what's going on from the actual medical standpoint. And two, also being switched on to the technology in such a way that they could actually get a hold of the imaging and actually share them using a Facebook platform for themselves to try and figure this out. Do you see that? savviness, what the Brits would call boxing clever, is just part of the community given the way the community operates?
1: I will, I will put it to a bigger perspective. So in the rare disease, the lack of knowledge is widespread all over rare diseases. So you have to be your child or your patients, let's say, doctor, uh, psychotherapist, physiologist, physiotherapist, and everything else. So the, the learning curve, let's say, of the rare disease advocate is a very steep one. So you have to have your hands on and uh, because at the end, whatever consultations you take, the final decision is yours Right. and you pay the price. So the more educated you are, the better off you do. But for the example that you said with Pat and Elizabeth, uh, that they launched the World Disorder Organization something like 20 years ago, I will never take it to a little more, let's say, to, to the next step. So we have a, a test, which is six-minute walk test. Right. So <laughs> we measure the children how fast or how slow they can walk because of the disease due to the issue that this is an entry point for the clinical trials. So if you walk the six, the 300 meters under six minutes, then you are not equipped to go. So the parents are fantastically trained their children to do exactly time, in a timely manner the 300 meters right. that is supposed to be the six minutes. So yeah, you see that and this growth is also crippling the, the, the drug development. Right. But I don't think that the solution is to keep the people lay and unaware I think we have to develop smarter models for drug development and clinical trials.
0: One of the other things you were touching on, the financial impact, both of the disease and the pandemic we're dealing with, COVID-19, as you point out, much like yourself, there's a choice to make because often the caregiver is the parent.
1: So to whom uh, you are referring to? To
0: to the family level, let's say. I think you're going to have it both from the drug development side. I think there's going to be pressure on actually governments to acquire expensive orphan drugs. I think we're going to see some pressure there. And I also think where there's going to be pressure on economies as whole, whether that be retirement benefits or stay-at-home benefits. I think that those are going to come under pressure as
1: well. Obviously, we still keep the agenda of the rare diseases very high. And uh, the advocacy groups are very active. And I would say even more active and more persistent in this period. But I wouldn't... Obviously, there are going to be financial impacts. There's going to be financial impacts also in the health budgets, dedicated budgets, possibly for the on drugs, for pensions, for uh, benefits. This... this, It will be there. It will be there. That's for sure. But on the other hand, I think I prefer to see, like I always do, the, the glass half full. So... Yes, it's going to be impact, but what this impact will lead to in the long run. So, as you said, are we maybe finally find out a best way of acquiring drug in Europe? Would this being changed? Are we talking of new models, let's say, of reimbursement? Are we talking of uh, new models, maybe, of uh, assessing the effect of the drug? Obviously, as you said, there's going to be pressure throughout the system. But one thing that uh, it was very clear in this situation with the COVID, and I think you would agree with me on this, is that in our fantastic previous life, that, for example, the rare disease patient advocates never had, or it was before the diagnosis, health is very low in the agenda. Right. And the economy is very high at the agenda. Well, let's see how health is affecting the economy right now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you can see in different ways, I think if there is a lesson to be learned here is that we should do more to work together. I mean, we saw this situation of Europe through the virus, and I will say from US also, from various states. So the fragmentation didn't help anybody. Obviously, the ones who work together did best. And uh, the second part is maybe we should revise how high or how low is the health agenda in our policy. Because at the end, if you don't have healthy people, you don't have an economy. And if you increase the cost, you have lockdowns, or you have units that cannot be, cannot produce, let's say, in your society, then the cost is higher than actually
0: developing new therapies. Absolutely. No question. If we look at what's been going on in Italy and Spain, for example, and I'm not picking on them, I just know the data right now. Yeah. Essentially, you're looking at 3% of GDP per month Per lockdown. That's 50 billion per month, 1.75 billion per day in each country. Meanwhile, an antibody test costs 50 euros. That is a far better investment than 50 billion in lost GDP. You know, you can buy a lot of quality for 50 billion GDP. Demetrius, let's be honest, nobody wants to be health minister. It's like the old joke about being a CIO. It means career is over. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but it can be the other way also. It can be the other way also. Dwayne. So, I mean,
0: nobody wants to be a health minister in case you do bad, right? But the deck is so stacked against the health minister. That's that, the problem.
1: That is true. That is true. But if you consider it the other way, all the health ministries had uh, increased budget. Yeah. So, you know, Maybe it's not so bad after all. But it depends on the results, obviously. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> so, but uh, when you're talking, I want to, uh, to mention something when you're talking about, uh, let's say, the testing, etc. I agree with you, let's say, on principle. But then you need, you know, reliable testing. You sure. need to have science behind this. You have to know that you have immunity because we hear about the immunity of the horde, but we don't know if there is immunity anyway. I mean... We estimate that there might be, and for how long, etc. So, I think we should invest maybe a little more if we can, you know, to have cures.
0: No, I I agree completely, and obviously, they are, although, a cure given the challenge that we have with vaccines generally across Europe. Yep, I mean, there are yeah, African yep. countries have higher vaccine rates than several European countries. There's a- I would
1: like to see the results after the COVID. Well, I would you- really love to see the flu results.
0: There's <laughs> a, really. there's an interesting video that was put up by Charles Michel, the chair of the European Council, yesterday yeah. discussing the partnership with the WHO and the European Commission putting their 7 billion euros up. There's a video on YouTube, and you can go look at it right now. There are 3,000 down votes and 56 Upvotes. So, <laughs> so that I th- tells you that tells you a lot who is uh, looting at this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, there's a lot. I mean, there's still a lot of skepticism about a vaccine. And if you're a vaccine yeah. maker, if you're a producer, you are going in fully aware that if you have an adverse event, you are going to be thrown against the wall into the lions. So there is going yeah. to have to be enormous outcomes trials and enormous outcomes testing, which is which to me just translates into three or four billion euros. I mean, I'm just doing the numbers yeah. in my head. Yeah. This yeah. becomes very expensive, and it also means yeah, but risk. obviously,
1: you see the margin profit afterwards.
0: Well, but yeah. it's there's still you know, Demetrius, you're a finance. It's competition, guy, of course, <laughs> but it's also risk. There's also high risk yes. here.
1: High risk. There is no high return without high risk, right? Precisely.
0: You know, one yes. reason I've always appreciated working with you, Demetrius, and, and you, know, you have a true sense of delivery and you come from a business background. You're a very organized guy. Now, I, again, I don't want to slight any of your colleagues. Um, many people in the patient advocacy world don't have that, shall I say, acumen that drive that background did you find it frustrating coming into a world where you expect results and you were compensated and basically rewarded for your drive but that's not necessarily the case in politics and particularly in patient advocacy in brussels how did you adapt
1: i say it's a it's a different environment <laughs> so obviously if you are coming let's say from a corporate environment and uh, you know from finance it's definitely a different animal but on the other hand if you have this background you can have a very uh, how you can say it, very clear image of the stakeholders and the business models and the interests. So it gives you a perspective. Sure. You have a more clear perspective. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it's as you said, because it doesn't, uh, finance doesn't include a lot of uh, bullshitting. Sorry for my language. <laughs> so it's on driven results. So you actually have this mentality of uh, be driven for results. And I think uh, being uh, having the luck, if you can quote on this uh, of having a child with uh, Dusan? Uh, I was found. I found myself in a family, let's say, that are very driven, very result focused. Although I have to say that this depends also on the condition, because, for example, uh, and I can understand this, I can relate to this. If you have, uh, if you are having an experience with cancer, and then you are cancer-free, you really want to put behind. You know, you don't want to remember it anymore. You want to continue your life. I would do the same. Everybody with its brains, let's say, will do the same. Of course, there are some few crazy people that do an amazing job in advocacy. But for uh, especially pediatric diseases, especially rare diseases, uh, you know, I I don't have Duchenne. Most probably, I will not die from Duchenne. I'll have something else. So if it was something that I suffered, I have the choice to say, okay, now I will stop. I will not work 18 hours. I will stop now and I'll take I don't know, my girlfriend or my wife or somebody to have a drink. But if you have it in your house and it is your child, then you do not stop. You never stop. And I think this differentiates sometimes the advocacy effectiveness comparing to the size of the rare disease with other, let's say, chronic diseases that are doing an amazing job. But, you know, this urgency, this time limitation, it's very intense in rare disease. And obviously, it's a fight that you don't fight for yourself. So you do not deserve a break.
0: Have you seen any direct impacts of COVID-19 on the sort of daily care that you're getting?
1: We actually measured uh, from Europe the impact of COVID uh, throughout uh, Europe. And I think also Nord did this around the U.S. And the impact is huge. So first of all, you do not go to your medical appointments. Sure. Okay. Then you will not receive your physiotherapy, speech therapy, and uh, occupational therapy, whatever therapy. You can do something remotely. But it's completely different, especially in, for example, physiotherapy that many, many children are needing and adults also are needing. Uh, you cannot do it by yourself so efficiently. So, for example, for my son, he is doing, and we're doing remotely. Let's Say his physio. I cannot do hydrotherapy, although I'll do it next uh, weekend. See in the sea, in the in the sea yeah, when you're but, on the yeah. island. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> but but uh, but you know this this uh, is a problem. So the care is a problem. The access to the hospitals and to expertise it's already scarce. It's a problem, and obviously uh, clinical trial participation. What will happen to the results? So this you are going to be accepted in the regulatory planet. So there are challenges. There are challenges. And I mean beyond the everyday challenge of the family uh, that they have to
0: deal with. Do you see Eurodis, European Patient Forum, EMA groups getting together to try and advocate for certain positions now or is there some coordinated effort to try and counteract the impact of COVID from all the organizations?
1: The patient organizations are always work uh, very close. So this is um, this is something that's not new let's say to EPA for Euro, this where we work very close with all our members. So I don't uh, I see the uh, immense work that's done uh, from uh, the organization, from the amazing staff, because you have to remember that we are parents, we are patient advocates, we are carers, and we don't stop because we have another drive. But also the staff in our organizations are doing an amazing job. Yeah. Everybody's alive and doesn't need anything else. But I have to say that I was positively surprised that also the regulatory bodies reacted very fast. Even in the European level, like EMA even in local level, let's say, in Greece, they were active. They were active from the beginning and they were pushing as uh, as far, let's say, and as fast as they could. I think in the European level, in the national level, in the coordination in Europe, I think we could do better. And hopefully we will do better afterwards and uh, for the future. This is a lesson I hope we really learn something. At least I can tell you that the regulators that I'm aware of, and the patient organizations have learned a lot and it's going to be used.
0: If you could, what would one thing be that you would like to change between now and the end of the year to deal with OMPs, given the current situation, if you had the opportunity to make one choice?
1: Come on, Dwayne, you know me. I,
0: I know. never go to one. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm setting the table, but I can edit. No, that's fine. Just, if you had the opportunity and it was laid yeah. out for you, what would you like to see happen between now and the end of the year? What I
1: would like to see happen is to gain something of this crisis. It's like I've told you with my diagnosis. So we lost thousands of people. We should learn something. This is our obligation as a society. Uh, I think in a societal level, we should learn something. We should appreciate things that normal people live and experience. And I can tell you, this is far from the reality of rare disease patients and the other patients. So uh, the one is the learnings the other is to reassess the value of health in our health policy and our policy overall because this will drive eventually the financial situation overall in europe Uh, but working together having a fresh look in things this is what i would like and i would like also let's say less people to lose from this one that's that's my wish you know i cannot never have one you know me (laughs)
0: Demetrius, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, my friend, and uh, I wish you all the best of luck.
1: Thank you very much. It was always a pleasure. Always a pleasure.